The following program was pre-recorded on WFAN. It's time for Hello, My Name is Craig, our weekly candid conversation about gambling addiction. It's supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER. Now, here's Craig Carton. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Hello, My Name is Craig. Uh, Craig Carton with you, as always, for the next 30 minutes. A frank, open, honest conversation about gambling and gambling addiction. Joining us, as always... From Epic Risk Management is our pal Dan Trelauer. Danny still consults the New Jersey Council on Compulsive Gambling, which you know better as 1-800-GAMBLER. Danny, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great, Craig. Good morning. How are you today? I'm doing great. Uh, really happy to have a guest with us today, Laban Ditchburn, who, uh, like you and I, is a compulsive gambler and uh, a sexy mamma jamma, if I may so myself. He's Australian, but now is living the good life somewhere in a city he won't tell me in New Me- in Mexico, not New Mexico, somewhere in Mexico. Laban, good morning. How you doing? Buenos dias, Craig. Uh, buenos dias, Dan. Good to speak to you, brothers, today. An Australian who's uh, bilingual. Okay, great. Uh, Laban wrote a book, um, which I've just finished, called Bet on You, which is um, it's kind of a... Uh, an entertaining look at your life, uh, but also paying attention to the fact that you are very blessed to have overcome uh, addiction and a lot of really bad things in your life and came out the other side, which I always think is an important story to tell because there are so many people who are just in it day one right now who feel like, you know, the walls are caving in, there is no light at the end of the tunnel there's no way they can get their finances in order. There's no way they can live a happy, productive life. And you're proof positive that you can. So let's start from step one. And that is many, many years ago when you seem to have some kind of death wish. And if there was a substance you could abuse, gambling included, you abused it. When did gambling become a factor in your life, even before it became problematic, were you a kid when that took place? Yeah, I, I actually am um, half New Zealand uh, and half Australian. My mum's from New Zealand and we grew up um, the first 20 years of my life in Christchurch in the South Island of New Zealand, long, long way from where you guys are based. And horse racing is prolific. And my uncles owned horses and and uh, there's a legacy of gambling dysfunction that's that's been intergenerationally passed through my DNA, I think, on both sides of the family. But in particular, as young as I can remember being involved with going to the races as a, as a very, very young man, maybe four or five years of age. Now, as a kid, were you always the kid that was willing to do anything? Were you always the risk taker? Were you always, you know, the first kid to jump off the rocks into the water? Or did that develop over time? Yeah, I was certainly one of the first two or three. The, it was the validation-seeking component that I that I really reflect back now and, and recognize that what I was trying to do was be seen. And I think a lot of people will identify with that. Now, is that I know, you know, you have a familiar story, even though, you know, you're from New Zealand and, and Australia, in that you grew up in a tough home environment. You know, your parents got divorced. Um, and like a lot of young guys out there and gals out there, you know, how do you emotionally process parents separating, which I think you acknowledge in the book is a is part and parcel with part of your journey, right? Yeah, I, I for a long time, I, I held resentment towards my parents for what they did to me, you know, 
And I came to realize with time and with healing and with help that they did the best they could with the tools they had available to them and, and never to diminish one's experience of trauma. And I know you've gone through your own stuff and Dan, I'm sure you've got your own story to, to tell as well, but it's, it's, simp- it's simply this, that you can't diminish your own experience. Because for me, it was nothing more innocuous than divorce. Right. And parents that were, that, were, that were ill-equipped to esteem themselves, let alone their kids. And, uh, you know, people go through much, much worse, but we should never compare because the brain interprets it very individualistically. Dan, we talk about that a lot, you know, that at a young age, there's some type of trauma. It doesn't have to be physical trauma. It could be emotional trauma that people use gambling to kind of just hide from that trauma, right? Yeah, that trauma really, it, it, it unveils itself later in life. You know, we talk about childhood experiences, you know, the collection of the positives and negatives and experiencing trauma at a young age or at any point for that matter. Um, the body tends to hold on to the trauma. It lives inside the body, but the body has no voice. It has no way of letting it out. So it comes out in these various ways. And for some people, it comes out in the form of drugs or alcohol. And for others, like we're talking about today, it's gambling. It's gambling to escape pain. It's gambling to numb feelings that we just don't know how to deal with, don't want to deal with, or don't have the right tools. You know, one of the things we all are blessed to have now is great clarity. Looking back on on the stupid decisions we all made and all the risks we took. So I wonder for you, uh, Leib, when you look back, is there a specific moment, a specific day or time in your life when you can now look back and say, this is when gambling became a problem for me? Oh, yeah. Six and a half years ago, on a Tuesday night, about midnight, three and a half bottles of appropriately priced Pinot Noir coursing its way through my veins, and I'm gambling with my laptop screen open on a horse race in a, in a country I wasn't in. It was in Hong Kong with money that wasn't mine. And I realized I had this epiphanous moment where I was like, hang on a second, Laban, this is not the life that you imagined for yourself as a young man. And in the bottom left-hand corner of the laptop screen, there was a number that stuck out like dogs. And I'd never seen it. I must've been on that, on that website a thousand times prior. And it was the number for the gambler's helpline. And without even putting any thought into it, I picked up my cell and I called that number. And this extraordinary woman whose last name I will never know, but I will call her Mary Magdalene. Her name was Mary and she became my guardian angel, whether she realized it or not. And the the spike that, that severed the attachment to gambling and the want to gamble at that point was when she said to me, Laban, the, the gamblers that we deal with kill themselves faster than any other addictive behavior. And that put the fear of God into me. And that's where I started my journey of healing. And was it cold turkey that night? Did you gamble again after the fact because it had become such a normal part of your life? Or did you literally have this almost religious experience where you saw the number, you called the number, Mary helps you out, and you were committed that day to never do it again? No, it took me, that was in, in March, and I my last bet was in December of that year, which was uh, 2015. And what was that, ego? Mm. You wanted to prove to yourself you could do it or stop on your own, or was it something else? Yeah, a part of that, but I, my situation, I, it seems like it's pretty unique, and I hope that it's not, and I want to really impart this message of hope to, to people who are listening and struggling with this. I f- honestly feel like I've killed 
the that ego or the desire to want to escape in my life. And so giving up is not a chore for me. I no longer crave the drinking, the drugs, the gambling, the philandering, the negative self-talk and the, the validation seeking behavior because I've been able to reverse engineer in my own mind at least what was causing me to want to escape and then realizing that I can reclaim back the power with that. And, you know, we, I didn't need to go through a 12-step program. And, and I know that there's some wonderful programs out there that help people in their own way tremendously. But isn't it great, you know, for any former smokers out there that have read Alan Carr's Easy Way Stop Smoking and after 20 years of smoking darts, you know, knocks it on the head the next day. Isn't that so liberating? And that's that's really what I've experienced in my own journey. So what was it? You had to come to terms with what you were hiding from or running from, or you decided at some point kind of cut out the shenanigans and look in the mirror and be honest with yourself? Yeah, I just looked at a metaphorical graph of, of my life and the direction that was heading as a, a man in his mid-30s, and it was heading off, off a cliff uh, very, very quickly. My life wasn't getting better, and it's supposed to improve as you get older, right, in, in terms of your achievements and, you know, meeting a partner and, and, and I realized that none of this behavior was serving me well. I didn't know how to fix it, but I knew I needed help. And I knew I needed to ask for help, not so that I appeared weak, but so that I could remain strong. And I kept asking for help until I got it. How, when you, I, I know this, I know a lot of your story is also drugs and alcohol and, you know, clubs and, you know, one thing, you know, drugs leads to alcohol, alcohol leads to drugs. Both those things lead to, you know, stupid uh, wagers and uh, throwing money around and risking money like it's literally growing on trees. But I wonder for you, when you look back on all of it, uh, at the depths of it, was there ever a point when you said, I don't want to wake up tomorrow or I'd done enough bad things or owed enough people money or couldn't look myself uh, in a mirror where not waking up was an option? Yeah, yeah, a couple of times. And, and it was usually the, the morning after a really big night and there would be a combination of the drugs and the alcohol and, and gambling. And it would usually be a combination of having lost all my money, being super duper hungover from the alcohol and coming down from the drugs. So it was just like this triple threat tsunami of just miserableness that, and, and you real and you think about, you had these thoughts, you're like, you know what, I'd be way less of a burden on the people in my life if I just wasn't here. Do you think, that, talking to a Laban uh, Ditchburn, the name of the book is Bet on You. It's really, a, it's a fun read. It really is. And it's an emotional read because, you know, he pulls no punches. You're very honest about yourself. I mean, there's a chapter in the book where, uh, you know, it's funny. The, the same ego, I think, that drives us to be incredibly stupid as gamblers is the ego we need to also conquer it. Um, and there are aspects of the book, Dan, where... You know, you take ownership of, you know, making love to an 80-year-old woman, and she credits that lovemaking session with uh, her deciding to paint again, <laughs> which, I mean, is pure ego. But uh, I wonder, Dan, do you buy that notion that the same kind of qualities we have as people that drive us in a negative way are the same qualities we use to drive ourselves in a more positive way? hundred percent. I mean, we have those personality traits and those things that are within a, a person with a gambling problem who then enters recovery. 
I, you know, working at the council for as long as I did, I, I, I was blessed with the opportunity to work with someone who's been here almost 28 years by the name of Alice Ostapiak. And she was here with the great Ed Looney and, and all the, the Arnie Wexlers of the world. And she said that to me so many times that you, gamblers can make the best recovery because they use those very same traits and those same characteristics. And when they put them to good use and they put them towards recovery and energy and recovery, it's the same thing that led to the downfall can also be the boom for recovery. So 100% agree with that. Talking to Dan, talking to Laban Ditchburn. We'll take a very quick break. Continue on here with Hello, My Name is Craig. Back to more of Hello, My Name is Craig on The Fan with your host, Craig Carton, and supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER. Welcome back to Hello, My Name is Craig. Great having you here uh, this morning. Uh, Laban Ditchburn, uh, who wrote a book called Bet on You, which I highly recommend. Uh, a, it's just a fun read, and B, uh, it kind of shows you the depths uh, many of us have gone in our desire to gamble and gamble some more. And, of course, as always from Epic Risk Management, is Dan Trelaro. Laban, how long would you say it took you to to really get healthy, healthy, to really have it conquered where, you know, if a buddy called you and said, hey, we're going to the track tonight, or, hey, there's a big game tonight. Um, I know you guys, you know, based on where you're from, wager on different sports than Americans do, and it's a different culture sports-wise, but at the end of the day, it's the same thing. Was it uh, a six-month thing, a year thing? Like, When did you get comfortable not gambling and making not gambling your norm? It was really a couple of years. In Australia, we had prolific access to countless betting sites, and, and they deregulated it at one point. And I think when I self-excluded in the early days, and I think it was like 13 betting companies that I had to systematically go through and, and exclude myself, the gambling part of it wasn't quite so bad because not every single one of my friends gambled. But when I when I decided to stop alcohol, because I knew that any time a few drinks would come about, it would create this temptation, I had created a, an amazing circle of people around me that were all interested in partying and drinking. And, and they, they struggled with that. We would go to the pub and for the first six months, they wouldn't even buy me a drink, wouldn't even get me a, a lemonade or right. a water. Like they just exclude me out of the round. I don't think it was deliberate, but they just didn't, didn't know how to behave. And, and what became abundantly clear is that I needed to surround myself with more like-minded people. So as a direct result of the life choices that I made in, in improving myself, I no longer associate with about 97% of my former circle of friends. And it's not because they are bad people. It's just that we have grown apart in different ways. And scientifically, people, we know this, you become like the five or six people that we spend the most time around. We earn within a few thousand dollars of them. So you've got to look at your circle of influence and, and work out very quickly whether they are serving you or hindering you in your growth. Yeah, I think that's a really important uh, message to send because I, I feel the same way. There are guys that I'll never talk to again for the rest of my life. And in reality, they did nothing wrong. Uh, they were just able to do things without it becoming problematic for them. And the reason I'll never talk to them again is not that they did anything wrong, is that they're always willing to say yes. Any 24 hours a day, seven days a week, there are guys that are no longer part of my life that if I picked up the phone right now, even knowing all the crap I've been through, and I said, do you want to go? They'd be at my house in an hour to pick me up. Like, you know, and... <laughs> which made them great friends, you know, in the, mix, in the midst of doing bad things. 
but they they become people that you just can't associate with. And that's a very tough thing to say to those people. I'll never talk to you again. But I wish you the very best. <laughs> you know, I really, <laughs> I do. And Dan, I'm sure you have people like that in your life, or at least you used to as well. Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. There's surrounding yourself with with the people, places, and things that remind you of what you used to do is going to lead you one step closer to that. So you you're creating, and I hear you both saying this: you're creating a new life where that just no longer fits in, and that means making those hard decisions because for long term sustainable growth and to thrive, we do need to. They, they were friends for a season, or they were friends for a reason, right? A season of our life, and for a particular reason, but they weren't lifelong friends. Yeah, and Laban, at the end of the book, you write something which fascinated me, and I struggled with it um, because, you know, I used to use the term career-wise in my profession. You know, when I came to New York originally back in 2007, I was the most listened-to afternoon guy in America at a small radio station in New Jersey, and I literally could have been there forever. And I, not that I was making millions of dollars, but I was making a very nice, comfortable, middle-class living had a split-level home that I could have raised my family and no problem, and I literally could have stayed there forever and made a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, and that would have been great. But I bet on myself. I believed in myself and my ability that I would be successful when I came to New York. And I sometimes don't want to use that terminology because of my past, but at the end of your book, you say something which is very powerful to me, and that is I used to be a gambling man. In some ways, I still am because I'm betting on me. And in your capacity now as, as kind of a life coach or someone who wants to teach people the positivities in life, you tell people it's okay to bet on yourself, and you mean it in such a different manner in the way we used to wager. And I wonder, when you wrote that, was that a hard thing to write? And why did you write it in the way you wrote it? It's a really wonderful, powerful question, and, and I'm so glad that it elicited such a thought-provoking uh, response in your own, you know, experience, Craig. And, and I suppose when I wrote the book, it was channeled by a much higher power than me. I'm, I'm not religious in any capacity, but I've become very spiritual in my approach towards life. And, and what that means to me is that when you, if you are betting on yourself, it's not a gamble. It's a dead certainty. It's like betting on whether the sun's going to come up the next day. And so it's not really the same context of, you know, there being chance. And so maybe the terminology is not exactly correct, right. but the metaphor behind it is simply to, to know that if you are reclaiming ownership of everything you've done in your life, you, you take back the power. And, and what you now have is this ability to inspire a, 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 a whole generation of people and maybe, Craig, that's what you needed to go through. You needed to go through the experience. You needed to go to prison. You needed to come out so that you could use this amazing platform and voice to inspire a whole generation of people. That's exactly what you're doing, and you should be so damn proud. Well, I, I appreciate that very much. Bet on you. You are an unrepeatable miracle. Bet on you. You are unique. Bet on you. Most people die at age 25 but don't get buried till you know, they're 65. Bet on you because you're a winner. You are a winner, which is a great way to end this show and a great way to, to end the book. I will say this. In addition to your kind of spiritual reclamation, you made a decision that the only way for you to really conquer gambling and live a healthy life mentally and emotionally was to do it physically as well. You lost like 50 or 60 pounds. 
you've decided to become an ultra marathon runner, which boggles my mind because I ain't running if there's no ball in front of me. And I would think that you get a similar sense of satisfaction when you cross that finish line as you used to get from bad things. I am happier than I've ever been in my life without any of the, the negative uh, consequences that I don't get the hangover. I don't get the regret. I, I do way less stupid stuff now. It's not that I don't do stupid stuff, but I do way less of it. And I, and I don't negatively impact people. In fact, I positively impact way more people than what I ever used to. And that's the encouragement that I would give to people. You don't need to live a life where you are constantly worried about this label of addiction. You can go on and do wondrous things that you'll only ever read about if you just take that first step and reclaim all your ownership and bet on you. Well, I'm really glad you reached out. Uh, it was great reading the book. I look forward to seeing you in person one day. Hopefully that'll be in Mexico, <laughs> but if not, I'll settle for New Jersey as well. And uh, stay well and be well. And thank you so much for the time today. Uh, the name of the book is Bet on You, uh, Laban Ditchburn. The forward's by Les Brown, who's a well-known author as well. And I uh, look forward to staying in touch. And any way I can help your cause, and Dan will say the same thing to you. You're on the same team, and we appreciate you sharing your story. Yeah, thank you. Uh, hasta luego, muchachos, and uh, thank you so much. Dan, that'll wrap it up for us. Uh, next week, uh, as we get closer to the Super Bowl, We'll start getting into uh, some of uh, that and what that means to a lot of people, especially you know, young folks that are starting to gamble for the first time. Always appreciate you coming on. Have a great week, and I'll talk to you again next Saturday morning. That sounds great, Craig. Have a great week. Thank you. Coming up at 10 o'clock is Evan Roberts, and Evan and I are back together again Monday at 2 o'clock right here on The Fan. Have a great weekend, and thank you so much for listening to Hello, My Name is Craig.